0: to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week we got new music from Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, a radio rundown, and a deep dive on how Boxcar Racer changed the course of Blink-182 forever. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from eight to 10 p.m. local time. If you wanna check it out, you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the app store and tune in this Saturday. If you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at note2scene at gmail.com. All right, let's get started. So a Day to Remember has released their new album, You're Welcome, through Fueled by Ramen, after well over a year of delays. There is obviously a lot to unpack about this record in everything that has gone on around it, but there are a few reasons why I didn't want to do an ADTR deep dive, and I hope that soon I'll be able to talk about why. But for now, we're just gonna unpack the album itself. Long story short, it's not good. It feels like a poor man's version of Common Courtesy, and CC had a ton of diversity, from the heaviness of violence and sometimes the hammer to the poppiness of I Surrender and Good Things. To the pop punk anthems like City of Ocala and Right Back At It Again. You're Welcome tried to replicate that consistent high-caliber diversity, but fails at literally every turn. Even the quote-unquote return to form moment on Last Chance to Dance, Bad Friend, feels phoned in. Jeremy sounds unbothered, not even just on this song, but the whole record let alone the fact that they're trying to call someone out here. I mean, trust me, this band is in no place to be calling anyone out right now. Bloodsucker is a failed Imagine Dragons impersonation attempt. Brick Wall is a clusterfuck of poorly executed multi-genre concepts. High Diving is one of the most embarrassing songs this band has ever released, which makes me wonder what shit they wrote that didn't make the album. And I'm not saying that because it's a pop song. I mean, listen to those lyrics, you'll see for yourself. Looks Like Hell is a weird western butt-rock track, Viva La Mexico is solid sonically but lyrically. What the fuck? It sounds like a frat boy's diary entry from a spring break trip that his parents paid for. One of the few, if not the only, redeeming moments on this album is Only Money, which is a ballad about Jeremy losing his grandmother and the lack of meaning money has at the end of the day, which even feels weird coming after the song Fuck You Money earlier on the album. The rollout, the delays, the complete disregard of allegations against Josh, the end result, after Degenerates came out and they delayed the album, I said it wasn't a good sign and people came at me for it, don't disregard missteps from bands when they happen. Sometimes redirects can happen, but they usually foretell a sign of things to come. And in a data Remembers case, the last two years have been a huge nail in the coffin. Bands, take note, whatever ADTR did for this album, in pretty much any way, do the opposite. And I'm not even talking about it not being heavy. I've said for years, I just want bands to make the music and moves to move them to the next levels. Bottom line here is that this is just a bad album. They are currently forecasted to do 21,000 total first week, so including streaming, but I expect the total to be lower than that. They were sitting at 4.4 million monthly listeners when they dropped the album, and right now they're at 4.6. I mean, the fact that Architects went up as much as they did off of their singles, and ADDTR isn't matching that whatsoever. I mean, it will obviously continue to go up some in the near future, but they should be toe-to-toe with All Time Low and Bring Me The Horizon at this point, and those bands have done nothing but stretch the gap over the last year, while A Day To Remember just spun their wheels. I mean, expect Falling In Reverse to pass them next. Alright, in other music news, Bring Me The Horizon released the long-awaited remix to their now-seen classic, Can you feel my heart? With rising TikTok star Jairus Johnson. This kid has gone viral a few times now and landed official remixes with Papa Roach on Last Resort, Chad Kroger from Nickelback, and now Bring Me. The song follows Jairus' typical foundation of bass-heavy 808s with the iconic Can You Feel synth line. He and Ollie duel back and forth across the track, creating an aggressive, dance-centered banger. It's hard to tell for sure because it could just be some studio tricks, but I think Ollie actually re-recorded his vocal parts for the remix, which is pretty cool. The original track started going viral on TikTok a few months ago and has skyrocketed their streams on Spotify, jumping their monthly listeners to more than two and a half million. These types of moments are exactly what the scene needs to continue progressing. We're in this really weird phase right now between moments like this and the MGK slash Travis Barker pop-punk revival wave. There is something happening, but it's up to the artists to keep pushing it forward to see if it all leads to a true commercial movement that permeates the mainstream in an all-encompassing way, like Emo did in the mid-2000s, but we'll see. All right, on to this week's radio rundown. On our all-time low tracker update, we have them holding at number 18 on top 40 radio but down 3.5% in plays. It's not the best sign, but it's not time to panic just yet. Hopefully we rebound again next week. They're actually back up to number four on alternative radio, up 2.6% in plays. They break even at number 55 on the Hot 100 this week. We gotta keep those radio plays up. It is the only way this song is gonna survive. Again, hopefully we see an increase at top 40 next week. MGK and Black Bear break even at number 10 on top 40, but they're up over 3% in plays, which is a good sign. And on Alternative Radio, they're number 1, stretching their plays up 1.4%. It's currently at number 21 on the Hot 100, reaching a new peak, and up from number 24 last week. Everything's looking good to break the top 20 next week, and after that, it's time to set sights on the top 10. Nothing Nowhere breaks even at number 18 on Alternative Radio, but is up 5% in plays. Mod Sun and Avril Lavigne are sitting at number 20, up over 6.5% in plays, which continues to look promising. I'm really excited about that one. Over at Rock Radio, Ask Alexandria is nowhere to be found, with They Don't Want What We Want dropping off the chart entirely. So they got one top five single from their new album and one top 10 so far. We'll see what the next song they push is. Bring Me The Horizon, on the other hand, have officially broken the top 10 at number nine with teardrops. It's up 6.7% in plays. There are a couple songs falling in plays ahead of them too, so fingers crossed we can keep the momentum going. Architects break even in position and plays at number 13, so... Hopefully we see an increase again next week. We don't want to get too stagnant because that's when we start falling. Escape the Fate single Invincible with Lindsey Sterling has broken the top 20 at number 19 and it's up 30% in plays. It's going to be keeping a close eye on that one because they're on Better Noise, which is the label to be on if you want to have rock radio success. And surprisingly, they have had it on their recent albums. Right outside the top 20, we have Black Veil Brides and A Day to Remember at 21 and 22. If they can break the top 20 like ETF just did, then I'll start tracking them too. But all right, that does it for this week's radio rundown. So we don't have any new scene releases this week. So after a month of new album dives, we're back to reaching through the archives. I've always been fascinated with scene side project bands. There was a time in the scene where side projects were actually commercially relevant. A member or members of a notable group could split away and create something entirely new, and people actually cared, and the industry actually pushed it. The Almost, Aaron Gillespie from Undero's side project that he fronted, released one of my favorite albums of all time, Southern Weather. That album sold 29,000 units first week. By two months later, it had sold over 72,000, and say this sooner as a single was getting big plays on rock radio. While not as commercially relevant, the word alive, anyone who was around the night Craig Mabbitt dropped that first demo EP on Myspace, you know how huge of a moment that was. It was the only thing the scene was talking about at that time. But perhaps the most interesting and important scene-slash-scene-related side project was Boxcar Racer, the band formed by Tom DeLonge and featured Travis Barker on drums. Their sole self-titled album was released in 2002, and I always love asking people who were around back then what it was like to experience it in real time. I was only seven years old at that point, and I was still a few years away from finding Green Day's American Idiot and having my life changed forever because of it. But 2002 was literally a different world, almost in every way than it is now. But for Blink, they were one of the biggest bands in the world. They were coming off of the multi-platinum success of Enema of the State and then furthering that momentum with the also widely successful Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Blink was actually still on the pants and jacket cycle when Boxcar was born. So they had a European tour get cancelled following the terrorist attacks on 9-11. And then when those were rescheduled, they were cancelled again due to DeLong having a herniated disc in his back that required multiple surgeries and healing time. Basically, Tom felt stuck creatively and didn't feel fulfilled from the creation of Take Off Your Pants. Apparently, Tom had never listened to much music outside of punk and its peripheral evolutions at the time, so on the Pants tour cycle, Barker actually introduced him to early post-hardcore bands like Fugazi and Quicksand, and this opened the door for Tom to want to create music outside of the typical blink-pop punk sound. Over the years, DeLong has insisted the project was supposed to be as low-key as possible and not even turn into a real band. I don't buy that entirely. I think he might have had some level of hesitancy and therefore downplayed it because he had never set out on his own before to create music outside of Blink in a professional capacity. But this dude has a messiah complex and definitely wants everything he does to be regarded as great. And that whole cycle began with Boxcar. So apparently the name Boxcar Racer was also the name of a band that Barker had played in while he was in high school. DeLong originally envisioned the album as a, quote, violent femmes-esque acoustic record, but it quickly evolved into the darker post-hardcore-ish sound we know it as today once Barker got involved. They also enlisted guitarist David Kennedy, who played in the hardcore punk band Over My Dead Body, and then when they started playing live, they added touring bassist Anthony Celestino, who we're going to come back to in a little bit. So, the Soul Boxcar Racer album was recorded over the course of six weeks, beginning in December of 2001. The band went with late producer Jerry Finn to record the record. You might remember Jerry from the December Underground dive near the end of last year that I did. Jerry is historically seen as one of the figures who pioneered the production of the modern early 2000s emo and pop-punk sound. Jerry worked on Enema, the Mark Tom and Travis show, Take Off Your Pants, this boxcar album, Untitled, and eventually the Soul Plus 44 album. His influence and imprint covers so much of Blink and the band's peripheral histories. He unfortunately passed away in August of 2008. So it's December of 2001. Tom, Travis, and David are in the studio with Jerry. Tom's back pain is supposedly so bad he can't even stand for more than five minutes without having to lie down. There is this guy that I found named Joe Schumann who has written quite a few biographical books about some random bands, from Iron Maiden to Kasabian to All Time Low and Blink. In his book about Blink, he claims that DeLong originally intended to pay for the album himself, but apparently an A&R from Blink's label at the time, MCA, which is still owned by Universal today, heard a handful of demos that the band was working on and wanted the album to be released by MCA. Later, a rep from the label sat in on a recording session and sealed the deal. In an interview with Guitar Center in 2002 that I dug up, Travis said of the label situation, quote, when we wrote this album, we didn't know if it was going to be on a label or if we were going to put it out ourselves. It was pretty up in the air, so we had no idea how many people it was going to reach. Once MCA jumped on board, it was kind of like, whatever, that's cool, cheers, put it out. We don't really care. In his book on Blink, Schumann got a quote from Sam Bukas, who engineered the album. He said, I don't think there was ever a doubt it was going to be released. You have a project with two members of Blink-182 on it. It's pretty hard not to turn a profit on that. I guess if the record company wasn't going to foot the bill, they were quite prepared to foot it themselves for Boxcar Racer. But the label did and the self-titled Boxcar Racer album came out on May 21st, 2002. It sold 65,000 units first week and three months later it had sold nearly 250,000 units. I think this was a massive boost to Tom's young ego. Like I said earlier, I think there was a part of him that really did actually just want another creative outlet but once the label had interest in the project and then it outsold everyone's expectations and then he had everyone around him telling him that it did unexpectedly well, the Tom Delong Messiah complex began to form. Before this, we never really had any public instance where Tom was gaining some sort of leverage in the blink equation. He and Mark were equals, and Travis was the link in between them. But this whole excursion that was Boxcar rubbed Mark completely the wrong way. First, it was that Mark didn't even know that Tom was working on something on the side, and Barker said in his 2015 memoir that he couldn't believe Mark didn't know about it, and that before 2001, Mark and Tom were inseparable. But then, after Mark found out about Boxcar, he wanted to be on the album, and Tom wouldn't let him. Tom's biggest concern was that he didn't want it to turn into a Blink-182 album, which I will give him that. The whole point of the thing in the first place was to have a creative outlet outside of Blink for ideas that weren't meant for Blink. And then Tom also maintained that the only reason Travis was involved was because he didn't want to pay a session drummer, which kind of feels like a shitty thing to say publicly, but also makes me think it was actually the truth. Mark did end up being on a song on the album called Elevated, which still feels weird to this day. But that tension is literally what led to the band's breakup in 2005. They soldiered through Untitled, and I truly believe they lucked into that album. They were a few more personal discoveries from Tom away from having a neighborhood situation on their hands in 2003 instead of in 2011. But in that same thought, the masterpiece that Untitled ended up becoming would have never happened if Tom hadn't have done Boxcar. So, you know, it's a bit of a retrospective give and take when we look at it hypothetically. But the bottom line is that Boxcar changed the course of Blink-182 forever. Untitled was created, and it changed emo as we know it. But Blink literally broke up after it. Tom had a chip on his shoulder from Boxcar, and then his ego exploded into Angels and Airwaves, which is a dive for another time, but holy shit. There has never been anything quite like the launch to Angels and the We Don't Need to Whisper album. It did 127,000 units first week, and at that point, I think Tom genuinely believed he could walk on water. It was his third band, he wasn't relying on any help from Blink members, and it was blowing the roof off of any expectations anyone had. The industry rumor that I've heard for years is that over a million dollars was spent on the Adventure music video. And then Tom never grew out of his Bono phase. He tried to infect Blink with it on Neighborhoods and the Dogs Eating Dogs EP, both of which do have their underrated moments, but the point remains. Everything came to a boiling point in 2015, and Mark did the one thing Tom never thought he would do. He kicked Tom out of Blink. Tom held his ego over Mark for more than a decade, and Mark finally had enough. I mean, you got to give it to Mark, though. He gave Tom so many chances before reaching his breaking point. But the boxcar story hasn't fully ended. The book keeps getting peeked back into by Tom and Travis here and there. They've teased a couple things on social media over the last five years or so, most recently near the end of last year when Travis tweeted that this year would be the album's 20th anniversary, which was really odd because the album won't turn 20 until 2022. But the band will technically turn 20 this year, so... Who knows what, if anything, will happen from that. There's supposedly one other boxcar song from back in the day that was recorded but never came out, and Travis has said that it never will. But one thing I dug up while researching for the show was in 2019, Boxcar's touring bassist, Anthony, left a very interesting comment on a Blink fan page on Instagram. The page had posted a video clip of Mark recording what was supposedly riffs for the second Plus 44 album that never came out. And Anthony replied, Struggling to play as always. You guys wanna know why Boxcar Racer didn't record another album or tour again? It's cause this guy, at Mark Hoppus, cried the whole damn time about it. The whole time we toured and that we were even a band. So there you have it, straight from the one purely no-name that was involved in all of this. I mean, take it for what you will, but it really just adds to the fact that from 2001 onward, Blink was a drama fest, and Untitled is truly a miracle album that probably should have never turned out the way it did. But to wrap up Boxcar, they actually did go out on a brief touring cycle in 2002. They played their first shows ever in April and then went out on a North American headliner that fall with support from the used and H2O. In 2005, after Blink had broken up, Tom looked back on Boxcar in an interview with MTV. He said, it's obvious that the music changed after I went and did Boxcar. One of the craziest things about Boxcar Racer is that it was the both greatest and worst thing for Blink. It was obviously the reason why we made that last record, which I thought was a masterpiece, but it also caused a great division in the band. It was really hard for Mark. He thought it was really lame Travis and I went and did that, but it was a totally benign thing on my part because I only asked Travis to play drums because I didn't want to pay for a studio drummer. wasn't meant to be a real band. So, again, take that for what you will, but the lesson here, which was a revelation to me the further I dug down the hole, is that Boxcar Racer changed Blink-182 forever. What's really interesting is to think where Blink would have been if Tom was satisfied with Take Off Your Pants and didn't feel the need to have to go and do anything else. We never would have gotten Untitled, but would we have gotten a handful more Enema or Take Off Your Pants caliber albums? But on that same note, if Untitled doesn't happen, how much of this scene doesn't end up existing ever? I think everyone underestimates the impact Blink-182 had on our world. To me, they are the single most influential band on the scene. The only other band that comes close would be Linkin Park, but they had more of a long-tail influence into the current age of the scene, while I think Blink got so many bands from back in the day out of their bedrooms and onto stages. But whatever the case, the fact remains, Boxcar Racer changed everything. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at scene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Noticine on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.